The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Have you listened to this Easter sermon? It's entitled, Celebrating a Satisfied God. The heart of the message is Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. But I want to start by reading John 17. If you'd listen to these first couple of verses, it says, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now, this has great significance because he has used this word, the hour, over and over again throughout the book of John to describe the coming time when he is going to become sin for us. He's going to die on the cross in our place. This word is used back in John chapter 2 when Jesus is with his mother at the wedding of the Cana of, of Galilee, and the hosts of this wedding run out of wine. It's a great embarrassment to the groom. The mother of Jesus finds out about it, and so she's very concerned. So she goes to Jesus and she says, they ran out of wine. There is no more wine. And Jesus responds in a very funny way. He says, woman, what is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. Now, the hour of Jesus is the hour when he's going to become subservient to all humanity. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be beaten and mistreated. And he's going to die for the sins of his people. What this passage tells us in verse 2, listen to this. He says, even as you gave him authority, that is Jesus speaking to the Father. He says, you gave him, that is me, the Son of Man, the authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given me, he may give eternal life. That's a little confusing because he's talking about two groups of people. He's first talking about all mankind together. All of them are in this group over which Jesus Christ has been given authority. He has authority over all flesh, all humanity. But there is among those of this humanity that have been given specifically to Jesus that are going to be the objects of his atonement, his death on the cross. He's going to die for these people, and they are going to be saved. He says, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that in order that to all whom you have given me, that is those specifically that he has given to Jesus, he may give eternal life. Then he goes on to say this. This is a powerful verse. This is John seventeen three. This is eternal life, that they may know you. Now, that, that expression, this is eternal life, is this is eternal life that, or in order that they may know you, that is a purpose clause. In other words, in order that they may know you is the purpose clause, and it tells you why you have eternal life. Why would God go to all the trouble of giving his son eternal life so that he might give this life to everyone who receives him by faith? It's so that they may know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And this is why we have eternal life. We have been given eternal life so that we could know God and that we could know Jesus Christ, his son. And this is what Jesus says to us in, in John seventeen three. This is the priestly prayer of Jesus. He's praying to the Father and speaking to the Father. And he says, this is the purpose of eternal life, that, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, this life was given to you because you received Christ. We're told in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, it says, this is God's testimony concerning his Son. This is the testimony that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in the Son 
And whoever has the Son has the life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So this eternal life was given to the Son in such a way that he would give it to everyone who receives him by faith. When we receive Christ, we receive eternal life. This is why in John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, in order that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, eternal life certainly includes the fact that we're going to live forever in the presence of God. But at the heart of it is this glorious meaning, that is, that we can know God. Now, this doesn't mean to know about God. It means to know him as a person, to know him personally. When I went and saw Bob Cousy play his last basketball game, professional basketball game, I knew who he was, but I didn't know him. He wasn't a friend of mine. I didn't go to him and call him by his first name. What he's saying here is that when we receive Christ, we receive a relationship with the Father, and we know him as a friend, as a father, and so we can speak to him. In fact, Jesus, when he taught his disciples how to pray, he says, pray in this way, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, And so we understand that we have come to know God in a unique way. We know him as our Father because we have eternal life. The Son gave us a life so that we would know the Father and the Son. We have this kind of relationship with Him. We know Him as a friend, as a personal relationship. And so that's what He is saying here in John 17. Here, this person who knows us and has given us eternal life is the person who dies in our stead. We're told this in several places. For example, in in 1 Corinthians 15, we are told what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came into the world to die for us and was buried and rose again. He was seen by a, a number of people, including 500 brethren at once, and all the apostles saw him. And so Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again. That's the gospel. That is the gospel message that we heard and believed when we came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that belief, that relationship that, that began on that day, is a relationship that includes us having eternal life within us. We have the very life of God so that we know God. And we know his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what becoming a Christian is all about. It's about coming into a relationship with God, the Father, through Jesus Christ in such a way that we know him as our Father. I'd like to to read to you this passage in, in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. I'm going to read down from there all the way to the end of chapter 53. This was written in 750 B.C., 1 Corinthians describes the death of Jesus, and it was written in about 50 A.D. However, this passage was written 750 years before the event took place. It's a prophetic passage, and this is what the prophet says. This is Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. This is God speaking about his son. He says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, he's saying this to the children of Israel, many people were astonished at your suffering. You look so pathetic, and they were overwhelmed by the fact that someone who could say that they are God's people would suffer the way they suffered. He goes on, he says, So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. In other words, what he suffered was worse than any man has ever suffered. 
And so if they were astonished at the condition of Israel when they suffered, can you imagine what they think about Jesus? This is why the Apostle Paul was so offended that there were a group of people who thought that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to save his people because he said, look at him. Look at the things he suffered. Look at the way he's treated. He couldn't possibly be be the Messiah, and yet he was the Messiah. And this is what God goes on to say in verse 15. Thus he will sprinkle many nations... Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them they will see. They're going to see the suffering Savior. And what they had not heard, they will understand. And when they heard the message uh, that he was suffering for our sins, they intentionally did not understand it. They didn't want to believe this could possibly be true. But he goes on, verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed our report or our testimony? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. We didn't lift him up and think he was something special. He says, surely our griefs he himself bore. Now he's explaining the truth, why he looked like he'd looked and why he did not appear to be the eternal son of God, the Messiah. He says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him. This is how we saw him. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We thought God was punishing him. That's why he suffered so. It was God punishing him. But he goes on, he says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, the prophet Isaiah is giving us the right scoop. He's telling us the truth about the sufferings of Jesus. It wasn't because he was a sinner and he was getting what he deserved. It was because he was standing in our place, like uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin, that is his son, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so Jesus experienced the punishment that we deserved, but he did that so that he could set us free from the, the effects of sin in our lives. He says, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yes, he really did suffer. And Isaiah goes on and says, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. He didn't object to the way he was treated. He gave into it. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed, if there is any way that this cup could pass from me, and then he stops himself. He literally stops himself, and he says, but not my will, but your will be done. In other words, he wanted to see the Father's will done in his suffering for us to set us free from the penalty of sin. In verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, he asked this question, Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people? Nobody. That's the answer. No one thought he was suffering because of the sins of his people. He goes on, verse 9, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. In other words, this is just a little event in the sufferings of Jesus Christ where he was buried in a rich man's tomb to indicate something very important. He says, in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This man who was suffering was not suffering for his own sin, but he was suffering for the sins of the people for whom he was dying. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. This is astounding. The father is pleased to crush his son, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his seed, that is his offspring, those who believe upon him. He will prolong his days. He's going to live after this death. He's going to be raised from the dead. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see his seed and be satisfied. He'll see those for whom he died and be satisfied that he did the right thing. He went to the cross and he died in our place so that he might save us. I can't even imagine looking at me and saying it was worth it. I cannot believe that. I can't get a a handle on that. It just seems like it's beyond me to think that Jesus would say that I was worth him going to the cross. But that's exactly what he says. He says that, that we were worth to him what it took in order to save us. Now, this is an amazing thing. It reminds me of how parents love their children. Sometimes people get upset with parents because they can't stop loving their children no matter what their children do. And we look at it, we're so objective, we can say, you ought to just cast them off, just disown them, kick them out of the house, don't give them an inheritance, don't love them anymore. But the reason that a parent loves his child is because who the child is to him. This is how God loves us. He loves us because of who we are to him. And he goes on, he says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see his seed and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my Savior, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. I'm going to raise him up and bless his life. And he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors. I'm one of the transgressors. He was was poured out for me, and he was numbered with me. And yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now, this is an amazing thing, that he was numbered with the transgressors. One of the things that disturbs people the most in reading the New Testament is finding out that Jesus was loving towards people who deserved no love whatsoever. There was a woman who was caught in adultery and she was dragged before Jesus and they wanted him to be the first one to throw the stone to kill her. And yet Jesus just started writing in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. It doesn't tell us. But all the accusers left. They dropped their stones and they left. And then Jesus turns to the woman And he says to her, where are all your accusers? And she said, they're gone. And he says to her, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. 
Well, that's a troubling passage because it doesn't sound like the gospel. It doesn't sound like he's saying to her, you should repent of your sin and believe on me and you'll be saved and forgiven. But instead, he says, go and sin no more so that you wouldn't fall into something worse. What's going on here is that the the all-gracious Savior is expressing his heart to this person who is going to come to faith in Christ and believe upon him. And he was numbered with the transgressors like her and me, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So he intercedes for them, even though they aren't worth his death, according to us and our valuation. And yet he saw them as being worth himself. To the father, he was worth a son. The father was willing to send his son to die for people like that because of who they were to him, who they are to him. I can't get over the fact that the father loves you and me, and he was willing to give his son, and he shows us what we are worth to him. We are worth the perfect son to him. He says, I'll give my son for you because you are worth that much to me. His love for us is that deep and that profound. What we see happening here is we see that the Father taking great delight in what God the Son is doing because he knows what he's accomplishing. He's about to accomplish the redemption of all of us who have believed upon him. The Father crushed his Son as the sacrifice for our sins. That says in, it says in verses 10, right at the beginning. Well, who was it that killed Jesus? Well, we're told in Acts 2, verses 22 and 23, it's true that man if allowed by God, could inflict suffering and death, but only God could make him a sin offering, a guilt offering, a trespass offering. Jesus did not pay a discount price for our salvation. He was crushed to the earth. Uh, When you see the movie, The Passion of Christ, sometimes you think that's kind of overkill. Was he really hated like that? Yes, he was hated like that. He was broken like that. He was crushed to the earth. He was broken in pieces. He was put to grief. Verse 4 of Isaiah 53 says he was made sick. They inflicted pain upon him. The idea is that the father was pleased to cause his son to take the full load of our sins upon himself and then suffer the penalty for them. The father exalted his servant's son as the Savior King in verse 10, the last part of verse 10. The conditional sentence here, it says that there are three things that happen to the servant if he meets one condition. And this is the condition. He must become a guilt offering or a trespass offering. He has to give himself as the payment for our failure to meet up to our obligation to God. Uh, We all know that we have not met our obligation. We haven't worshipped him as we should. And we even feel the, the guilt of yesterday and day before yesterday when we did not live in a way that he deserves. And yet Jesus is our trespass offering. He has paid in full what we have failed to do. So he made restitution. And that's why all of our trespasses have been forgiven. All those times we have failed to live up to our obligation to God have been forgiven through Christ. The life of Jesus Christ had limitless value. His death was more than paid for our sins. His payment was far outstripping our debt. God is delighted with this. 1 John 2 says, If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. 
Now, this, this is an amazing truth, that Jesus, this, this one who died for us, is worth more than all the humanities that could ever exist. There is no point in saying he was only worth a limited number of people. His life was without limitation, his, the value of his life. He gave his soul, we are told. He, he gave his soul. He rendered his soul as a guilt offering. The soul is the deepest part of man, the place of our affections, our deep feelings. Jesus freely gave himself as a guilt offering for us. And it was totally voluntary. He wasn't forced into it, but he freely obeyed the Father's will. He knew that, knew that the Father would take great delight in his fulfilling this work. And this is what brought him to Calvary, the fellowship of his sufferings. Totally self-sacrificing. He withheld nothing. And the consequences that God gave him to, to demonstrate how God valued his life and his death for us is he raised him from the dead and he exalted him to the right hand of God, we're told in Psalm 2 and Romans chapter 1 verse 4 and 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 22. His life after resurrection was a life of exaltation. And it says that he will see his offspring. Literally, he would look with satisfaction on his descendants, all those who believe upon him. Now, his offspring, he didn't have any physical children, but he had those, all those who believed on him became his own people. We are his offspring, we are told in this passage. Through his death, we have come to be children of God. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 says, His sacrifice will bring many sons to glory. In John chapter 12, verse 24, it says, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And this, of course, is what happened. Psalm 22:30 says, A seed will serve him. Well, the seed is, are his descendants, those who have believed upon him and have become a part of the family of God. And it says he will prolong his days, that is, he's going to enjoy long life for all eternity. He's going to look upon his seed. We're going to be with him, and he's going to be delighted that we are with him. Not only will he have a seed, he will personally live again after giving his life as a guilt offering. This is the promise of resurrection. This was God's stamp of approval on his work, these 33 years on this earth. He did exactly what the Father wanted him to do. This is, this is the good pleasure of God because it was in the plan of God. This way, some people get upset about the word predestination, but what it means is that God has a plan and he's working out his plan. He's fulfilling his plan. Just like you, if you're going to take a, a trip to New York, you put it on a map and you follow the route to get there. And it gives you pleasure to find out that you have you have followed this plan and you've achieved the goal. You got there. You, you arrived at the destination. The death of Jesus is the key event in the plan of the ages. We're told this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. It says that the Son of God appeared once at the high point of the ages or the consummation of the ages. It's that point in time which explains everything in the plan of God. This is why God did what he did in the in in the flow of time he sent his son into the world his son was refused and rejected and his son was crucified and hung on a cross the father could have easily stopped that but this was his good pleasure that the son would pay for the sins of his people and uh, that's exactly what he did now he was in the father's hand the whole time uh it was because he was accomplishing the goal of the ages 
God's good promise is this, his servant will be satisfied. Not only is God satisfied, he says, I promise you that he will be satisfied. The word satisfied, yishba, not only means contented, but filled abundantly or abundantly supplied with everything you need. This word describes what a person feels when their deepest desire is being fully realized. And this is when when Jesus was praying in the garden, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is praying, why is this suffering of this nature that you have forsaken me? But what happened was he was profoundly satisfied after that. Two things. He was satisfied with who he sees. He sees his seed and is satisfied. His profound satisfaction, that's verse 11 of chapter 53, His profound satisfaction comes as a result of the application of his crosswork in in individuals' lives. There's a song called He Knows My Name, written by Tommy Walker, and it's, it's about the fact that God, who sent his son to redeem us, knows our name. Uh, I was reading an article recently about how we ought to relate to children in our flock because our churches are getting older, our younger people are leaving, and the congregation is, is growing in age. And therefore, what we should do, the most important thing we can do, is relate to the children in our flock. And I thought, you know what I need to do? This is what I need to do. I'm really bad about this. I need to learn their names. I need to know them by name. I need to know their name like God knows my name. I have a name that's hard to, uh, I've always thought was hard to pronounce, Griffith, G-R-I-F-F-I-T-H. My dad, when he was introducing himself to somebody, he would always say, uh, Fred Griffith like Andy, Griffith like Andy, (laughs) because he figured everybody knew about Andy Griffith. Well, God knows my name and he can pronounce it. And uh, if I was in his presence, he would call me by name and I would know that he knew me. Well, what we need to do is we need to get to know one another to the point where we can call each other by our names. We are to be that close to each other because Jesus is that close to all of us. His continuing work, that what he's doing right now, is he is justifying those who are coming to him by faith, and that is he is putting them right with God, and he is living in relationship with them as a Savior. He's bearing them up. He's taking them where they need to go. And, and God calls him my servant. Dying for our sins was an act of obedience that the Son did to the Father. Why did Jesus die for you? Because the Father commanded him to. He didn't win the Father over for you. The Father sent him to die for you because the Father wanted him to die for you and to be brought into his family. God's good reward is also found in this passage. It tells us, beginning in verse 12, that God's good reward, that is, his servant, will reign victoriously because he suffered vicariously. He will reign victoriously, verse 12. He's going he's gonna to have a place of preeminence. We worship him. We extol his name. We allot him a portion with the great, we're told. That's what God the Father did for him in Ephesians 1, verses 18 through 23. A people will share his triumph. He will divide the booty with the strong. The booty is talking about the spoil he received in the war against the enemies of God. Those who follow in Jesus in in his day of power are described in Revelation verse nineteen, chapter nineteen, verse fourteen, because he suffered vicariously for us. A final word from the Lord about his servant and his sufferings. He says he did this because. 
it's because he suffered vicariously that the Father honors him. The idea is the portion with which the great, uh, with the great which the Father gives him is in return for the great work of redemption which he accomplished. Notice the final description of his great work. He says four important things about his sacrificial death. First, he says he was a voluntary sacrifice. And then it says he was a substitutionary sacrifice. He was a voluntary sacrifice in the words he poured himself out to death. He was a substitutionary sacrifice because he was numbered with the transgressors like me. He became one of my companions. He was an atoning sacrifice. He himself bore the sin of many. And he was a satisfactory sacrifice. The Father received him as payment in full for our sins. The Father was pleased to crush him, not because he enjoyed his, seeing his son suffer or being in pain, but because he was delighted with the work of the Son that the Son was doing for us. He was providing a way of salvation for you and for me. Can you imagine the Father rejoicing that the Son provided the means of you being saved and brought into his family? Can you imagine the father being full of of satisfaction over the fact that you are now his child? That's exactly what the Bible says is true about us right now, that the father is satisfied with us, not because we have done everything right, but because Jesus has done everything necessary to bring us into the family and make us his children. And we are grateful for that. And that's why we celebrate Easter. Easter is the celebrating of a satisfied God. God is totally satisfied with what the Son has accomplished. And that's what this this text is all about, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 52 and 53. God is totally satisfied with the work that Christ has done on your behalf. You've been brought into the family. You have received the blessings. There's a wonderful passage in Ephesians chapter 1 when it says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And then he gives one example. He says, just as you know, just as you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world to become holy and blameless, that the Father set his love upon you. And he said, I'm going to bless you through my son. That's why Jesus came into the world, to die for those that the Father had given him. And we now experience the full benefit of that. We are in the family because of Christ, and we are blessed as those in the family because Jesus Christ. So we ought to praise him, and we ought to give thanks that we have a satisfied father, that he's very satisfied with us. Um, I'm satisfied with my children. They're not, they're not perfect by many people's standard, but they are exactly who I want them to be. I am so grateful for God's rich, rich blessings. And God has has told us that he is very happy with what the, father, the Son has produced. He has brought a host of people into his family. Jesus has become the firstborn among many brethren, and the Father is greatly satisfied with it. Let's give him thanks for that. Our Father, we give you thanks for your great, great work of redemption that you've brought us into the family and you've blessed us and you've made us exactly what you want us to be in Christ Jesus. We have been received and accepted and we are loved by you, Father. We thank you for that. We pray that we would live lives that would res- that are responses to your love for us. We pray that we would live in such a way 
that we would have to explain. It's because you are who you are, and you have blessed us as you have blessed us. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.